0: Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 298. We are going to hit 300 episodes in July, Dr. Fryer, which is mind blowing. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight, sir?
1: I'm wonderful Jason, and I apologize for the delay tonight, but uh, good reasons. My dad flew into town. He's actually here in the room uh, watching live, and it's a lovely, lovely day in Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: Excellent. Well, um, what is on tap for tonight here at the Addict Situation Room?
1: Well, thanks to... I I did put a few links in, but uh, we are going to talk about the past week plus, I guess, uh, but but mainly the last week of of, uh, tech news through an educational lens. And I think our leader of the night may mix up the order a little bit with some geeks of the week first, but we have numerous, probably 20 topics on AI, Apple, Google, Amazon, social media, tech correction, privacy, information literacy, media literacy, security, and miscellaneous. And I think that you and I might have uh, listened to the same Hard Fork podcast, and so I think we're probably going to be talking about the Apple Vision Pro a bit through the lens of Casey Newton and uh, Kevin Ruse. But uh, yes. anyway, yes, we will be diving in, as we always do, I'm sure, into the AI rabbit hole and falling, falling in, but, but recovering and emerging relatively unscathed by the end, all in one hour.
0: Oh, yep, sounds great. Well, uh, like you mentioned, um, and maybe it's because I I feel like I have one that actually stands up to yours this week as part of the reason why I want to go early. But um, I just thought we'd start with our Geek of the Week this week, in part because there's two really great ones here. Um, uh, Wes, do you want to go first and share a whisper
1: board? You bet. So uh, I had mentioned on the show that <clears throat> I was part of a podcast a couple weeks ago at our school, with uh, Christian Gibson, who is a high-ranking or high-level employee of OpenAI. And we were talking, our, our show is called From the Horse's Mouth. That's the podcast for school. Um, and it's called Demystifying AI. And anyway, in the course of, of actually, I think, visiting with him afterwards, I learned that OpenAI has developed their own speech-to-text technology, which is remarkably good and very lightweight um, and just excellent. <clears throat> and I've had a bit of frustration uh, sometimes using Apple's um, uh, speech to text, and so this is a free app called Whisperboard, and I've just been using it for a little while. Uh, Discover Whisperboard, the premier voice recording and transcription app using utilizing the cutting edge OpenAI Whisper technology. This app enables seamless recording and transcribing audio to text at no cost, placing prowess of a speech recognition engine right in your hand. And I don't know, Jason, if you've been doing this, but I have the OpenAI app on my iPhone. I'm using mm-hmm. it a heck of a lot. And I'm also finding that the voice transcription that is built into the app is better than what is just built into the iPhone. So I'm actually contemplating doing some dictation of some book chapters. I find myself dictating all the time. And so anyway, I was excited to find this when I just really went to the app store and searched for Whisper voice to speech. And yep, sure enough, there's an app. So it's free. And uh, if others are playing with it, I'd like to know what you all think. But so far, so good. I like the results.
0: Yeah, well, I hadn't heard of that, and in fact, I just downloaded it, um, and it appears to work on Mac, in addition to working on uh, the iPad, so that's really great, and I I love that, I mean, you know, it's easy to get taken in. Uh, and I think we've got a couple articles about this tonight too, it's easy to get taken in by the generative AI piece of, of, of ChatGPT and like technologies, but the bottom line is, is that there's going to be some extraordinary evolution, I think, of, of, of um, apps like this that plug into the, the larger mechanisms of these new large language models that are really going to provide some stunning um, opportunities. Uh, and I think of it from the standpoint of... Um, uh, like putting captions on videos, right? That YouTube's technology is pretty good, but it's only 82, 85% effective. And imagine for a moment when we start introducing more of these very advanced um, large language models, I think we're gonna have uh, some really extraordinary evolution, uh, which of course is, is wonderful news um, for those that rely on captions on you um, know informal video like YouTube. And then I want to share one tonight, uh, too, that is pretty interesting, and I discovered it uh, the other day uh, kind of by happenstance. But um, I have – well, I I believe that I copied this from you a long time ago, Wes, and I can't remember who you copied it from. um, But for a long time, and I have some for some of my projects, um, I've created my own link shortener. Um, uh, u- utilizing URLs, y o u r l s, um, which is a great piece of software. Um, I will say that more recently I've moved to just using WordPress for that because there's great plugins for WordPress to do the same thing, and it's auto updated. You can create a homepage for it that, uh, you know, is less, uh, less than just the interface it goes to. Um, but um, last week I noticed that I thought I still had. had Um, my um, uh, mine up, which was called jasonlinks.net. And I had forgotten, in fact, I had some notes in a document about this that I took it down three or four years ago um, because I wasn't using it as much anymore. So um, I was trying to figure out whether I want to put one up and buy a new service and install WordPress and do the whole thing. Well, I ran across something that I had not seen before called short.io, which is a link shortening service, which you can add a domain to. And so um, it's free for uh, 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 what I would consider to be probably most people's implementation of it. I know that a lot of, of people that do professional development uh, and teacher workshops like myself and, and Dr. Fryer um, uh, uh, utilize uh, you know, personalized link shorteners quite a bit. And plus all the other ones like Bitly, for example, it's hard to find a, um, a good short URL with words you might wanna use, right?
1: And you got to be careful because if people mistype by a letter yeah. or a number, they suddenly get somebody else's link. And that yeah. can sometimes be a jarring experience.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so I ended up going to short.io and then I spent, I spent more time looking for the domain name than I did um, actually setting it up. But you can get a free account with up to five <laughs> custom domains. Um, with uh, a total of one thousand branded links, and um, that's a, a a large number of links, um, uh, and up to a thousand link automations, um, with fifty thousand tracked clicks, um, and with at no cost. And you know, it, it does go up, uh, you know, decently in price from there. the 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 personal account is um, nineteen dollars a month, but I went to my preferred domain. Um, Registrar, which is uh, hover.com. And I spent 10 minutes looking for something that was at dot link. And I wanted a word that meant short. So it it made sense. And I ended up finding half pint dot link, uh, which was 12 bucks. And uh, I set up a short dot uh, IO with half dot link. And now it's set up as my link shortener. And I'm feeling kind of clever because. Um, you can set the homepage it goes to if if you type a bad link in or if you mistype the link. And so I sent it off to um, uh, the Rickroll uh, uh, song um, on YouTube. So you'll know if you screwed it up because you Rickroll yourself, right? So um, I used it at some trainings I did on Tuesday or yesterday. As a matter of fact, Um, I worked with some teachers yesterday on AI stuff. And halfpipe.link is now my link shortener. So if you're looking for a custom link shortener, um, it seems to be a pretty great service. Um, And again, it's going to cost me essentially $12 a year. I don't use a link shortener all that often, but um, enough so that uh, um, I I will be using this, um, uh, I would would imagine, uh, quite a bit. So
1: and, and Peggy asked, these are domains you own uh, or can create a short link for any website? I think it is it is something that you own, right? So you you yeah, bought that yeah, domain? I, I
0: bought halfpint.link so I own that now and I have enough domains that are pointed at anything. I'm kind of a d- domain hoarder um, to be honest. Um, uh, uh, I, I have had people offer me money for, for domains in the past that I've taken up on and actually uh, managed to flip a profit but um, the the um, Uh, I did buy a new one for this, but you know, domains are, are if you, especially if you, you don't buy a very fancy one is, you know, in this case, 12 bucks a year. So.
1: Yeah. Well, and yes. And I've used URLs for a number of years. And um, you know, what I mainly do now, sometimes whether for a presentation, I'll I'll shorten a a Google slide link. Um, But now with the gift links, the Washington post automatically shortens them, but like the New York times does not. And they are so, so long. And so that's really handy. And that's uh, generally what I'll put into the, the chat here and also uh, put into a link. And, I, and it's interesting. Um, the the last one that I shared, uh, oh, I guess this was an Ezra Klein um, podcast i listened to. You know, it just 239 clicks. And there was another one, 415. And so it's just, it is, it's interesting to, to know that kind of stuff as far as some metrics. Um, so that's cool. That's really awesome that, hey, $12 a year is pretty cool. And like we said, you avoid the, the perils of bit.ly and the other URL shorteners that lots and lots of other people use and link lots and lots of other sites to. So. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, Well, and then just, here's a random thing. So I was just looking at the analytics for halfpipe.link and um, uh, there's been 324 direct uh, hits to halfpipe.link I certainly did not serve 324 people yesterday as part of this um, but what's super interesting about that is that somehow that that URL has been accessed by people around the world in just the last you know uh, 48 hours that's been up and running so um, that's interesting too as a matter Probably of fact Probably
1: because of its domain registration I think yeah. um, because it's registered and, and one of the things for folks to know um, about domains because I've definitely collected those over time as well is that if you unfortunately let one lapse, um, especially yeah. if it's a .com or whatever, it gets snapped up quickly because somebody's thinking, "Oh, you're going to want that again," or somebody else will as well. So, it uh, it does commit you to you know renewing the domain, but it is a real nice way to have a professional uh, presentation on your shortened links for sure, as well as absolutely. Linked.
0: Well, thank you for indulging me, Dr. Fryer. So we uh, have several articles tonight. Um, I would imagine that AI will suck up some attention. Should we do some nerdy stuff first and then jump into AI of the week?
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely. We didn't do the Minecraft mod one last time, I don't think, did we?
0: Um, No, I don't think we did.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's just do this one really quick. Um, So uh, this one's under security. Uh, Ars Technica from June 7th. Uh, dozens of popular Minecraft mods found infected with the Fracturizer malware. Um, and so I'm not, you know, in a situation in the summer where I've got access to my students, but uh, mods our um, modifications are really popular for, for Minecrafters. And so the overall uh, recommendation of this is to just stop updating or downloading uh, Minecraft mods um, because of these hacks that uh, infect Windows and and Linux systems. Um, It's got a list of the different mods that are affected. Uh, And I just think this is a good reminder for why we need to be really careful about the things that we download. Students do as well. Um, You know, it's, uh, I think... Especially if you've got kids that are they're playing games, I mean, it can really be good to have a game system that is a separate system that, that won't necessarily, you know, infect other things. If if uh, you know kids are downloading stuff, and I say kids, people of any age, and it's also important to you know track these sorts of things and, and be aware. So if you have any Minecrafters in your life, or if you're a Minecrafter yourself, uh, you probably want to check this out and um, possibly put a pause on Minecraft mod downloads.
0: Yeah. Well, and then just a related article to be the Minecraft link. Um, and I'm wondering how cross platform uh, these are. I assume it is, but uh, there's an article from N Engadget uh, last week. Um, that Minecraft is now universally available uh, to users of recent Chromebooks. And so um, we, we've actually followed this story for the last couple of years because I uh, used to be able to download the Android version of it, but it's substantially disabled in comparison to these full experiences now available on the Chromebook uh, for just $20 on that that um, 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 uh, as the part of that process. But the thing I would note here, is, oh, go ahead.
1: West. And education. So if, if you yes. if you as a school license Minecraft education could put that on the Chromebook, but without the education license that you couldn't get as an individual, um, no no Minecraft on the Chromebook previously. So this is exciting. Right.
0: Yeah. So the thing I would also say here, though, is that and 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 the reason why I, I this is interesting to me is because. Um, of some information I was talking to some tech directors last week in a meeting and um what's what is something that's actually kind of surprising to me is that it only runs on Chromebooks that have been released in the last 3 years with some older models but it tends to be ones that have a um a significant um uh, hardware to them and um what's so interesting about this to me is that uh The number of schools that I've talked to tech directors that even though they were able to get six, sometimes seven or eight years out of a Chromebook, were just not funding technology to a point where that's enough time. And then sometimes Windows and the Mac OS can be uh, considered a a better deal uh, because you can oftentimes run very old versions of the, uh, or very, I'm sorry, new versions of the operating system on very old hardware. And the experience might not be very good, although I can't imagine that if, you know, Chromebooks lasted nine or 11 years, that the low-end Chromebooks would feel super great, you know, in a year six, eight. 10, 12, 11. But um, I do think that that's, that's something interesting. And it, um, I know how popular Minecraft is. I also know how popular Chromebooks are. If you have recent ones, I think this is a good thing to start looking into if you want uh, further opportunities for students in your schools.
1: Yeah. And shout out for anybody who's not using Minecraft with students. Uh, it really is a phenomenal environment and i'm really looking forward um actually i think this year i'm gonna i'm gonna propose we have to do it you know in advance but not not for this school coming school year but i'll put a proposal in before december um to actually teach a a, i don't know we'll call it something like 3d um design in minecraft or whatever but just a, a straight up elective that's for middle school that's nothing but minecraft uh you know building and creating so i think that anyway we'll see if that it has to be approved but it's 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 stunning what students can create in a world of ver- of basically unlimited Lego bricks if you want to think about it that way.
0: Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a great metaphor. Um, and then while we're on Chromebooks, uh, there was a great article yesterday in about Chromebooks. Kevin Kevin Tofel's uh, uh, website about all things Chromebook. And um, I mentioned this in part because I saw this article yesterday and actually popped these on to to my Chromebook at work. Um, but there are a couple of really great things in, um, uh, the Chrome, uh, one, one, four release that I think was available this week. um, Uh, that are behind flags. And for those of you new to being kind of a Chromebook power user, there's an awful lot of functionality, some of which doesn't come real supportive functionality, but Google oftentimes turns on cool new features early. You just have to uh, 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 change a flag to do that. If you have a managed Chromebook, it's likely that you don't have access to this, but if it's your personal Chromebook, you can do this. Um, You can get um, new colors and uh, some new theming, um that goes with the new uh, Google design set known as Material U um there is uh, Android app streaming is available now uh, for most Chromebooks which is very interesting there's also something called a reader mode that is is pretty interesting you can customize your shortcuts but the thing that I want to highlight was a split window management and um for me, I, I uh, on Windows and, and, and Mac machines, uh, utilize a really great app called Divvy, D-I-V-V-Y, that um, allows you to position Windows anywhere on a screen by pressing a hotkey and choosing where you want them. Some of that functionality has been built into Windows 11. And in fact, I think that that's one of the killer features in what... Did I sneeze off, Mike? I hope I did. You um, were
1: successfully muted. We heard okay. nothing. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, man, really get my radio chops here. Um, the... Um... Um, and it's it's a killer feature in Windows 11 because the smaller screen that you have, um, the more likely it is that um, you can manage a window uh, well. And that that feature is behind this flag in Chromebook. And I see Peggy in chat asking a great question: uh, When do I use split windows? Well, um, as an example, right now I have uh, I'm, I'm at home, and of course, as I'm sure is not surprised by any regular listener to the podcast, I have a ridiculous setup at home. Um, a huge uh, 34 inch 4K monitor. And then I have a monitor off to the side here that's actually up on its side. Um, But, you know, when you have that big of a monitor and that high of a resolution, um, you know, you never put a single window up, you put multiple windows on. So right now, um, on the left-hand side of my screen, I have the StreamYard uh, interface so I can see Dr. Fryer and, and go back and forth with him on the right, I have our links document. And that's obviously, with a big screen, a great use, but it's also important when you have a small screen. So if I'm on just my laptop, um, what I will oftentimes do is um, uh, put... Um, the left window on two thirds of the left-hand side, I'll put the other window on two thirds of the right-hand side so I can click back and forth or use alt tab or use uh, the keystroke commands to get back and forth. There's also some, some uh, finger gestures too to do with that. But for me, it's window management. And one of the ways I think it's really important to learn how to multitask on a computer is knowing, you know, if you have too many windows up, you need to get rid of them. Same with tabs, but also where to put your windows to maximize your workflow. I'm a really into workflow. I try to sometimes, like, advise coworkers about workflow stuff. And and to be honest, most of the time, they just roll their eyes at me for good reason, to be honest, but um, you know, that's something that I think a lot about when I'm using a computer. So great addition to um, the Chrome OS library.
1: And Peggy, I would uh, say it's also great when students are using a script and then they're recording something. So for instance, with our Fruit Loop Conspiracy Theory Unit uh, and teaching kids how to use Adobe Spark Video, which is now part of Adobe Express, uh, students would, would have a script and they'd fill that out. Now, we're fortunate uh, where, I'm, where I'm teaching right now, students have iPads, and then we have a cart of laptops. So students are able to pull up, um, in this case, a script on the laptop, use that screen, and then they can just use their iPad app to record. But at my previous school, where I was teaching for three years with Chromebooks, uh, didn't have um, that situation. And so students were uh, having to, to do what Jason is talking about and, and, and multitask. The other thing (laughs) I would just say as far as screens is I've got three screens here. So, yeah, Dad, you can see behind the, literally behind the screens. And two of these are directly thanks to Dr. Knifer. So my iPhone 14 uh, is uh, magnetically attached uh, behind this 27-inch iMac screen, which I'm basically just using as a monitor. Um, But it's streaming to my MacBook M1 laptop, uh, which is using this XSplit vcam software Uh, and sometimes i pixelate because of that wi-fi but uh i'm using this 27 inch um, imac in sidecar mode even though it's a 2011 machine And I don't think I can uh, have this roll off the tongue, but there was a software program you had shared, Jason, months ago that allows you to update the firmware and run a more current Mac operating system. And so that's what I am doing. It's a bit of a hack, but that is really cool. And so I'm able to use that sidecar mode. So
0: Yes, and in fact, what you're talking about is... um... Uh, and of course it's on the tip of my tongue too. I can't remember the name
1: of it. But it's yeah. somewhere on our show notes if somebody yeah. wants to go through and look for it. But it's a, it, it was a bit geeky. It required a USB stick and doing some boot up firmware updates and things like that. Yeah. So, um uh,
0: well anyway. and and uh for me, what that's been critical for is that um I you know I I don't scratch for technology in my home as we've both mocked me in the past for that uh, uh uh proclivity of mine uh to to collect technology but if you are a Mac person and you don't have the cash to buy a new Mac and you can it doesn't take a lot of research youtube is a great uh place to start um, you can buy a four five, six, seven-year-old Mac and get the latest operating system. And most of the features, some don't work, but most of the features uh, work pretty great and um, provide a real opportunity for you to um, um, uh, to utilize the latest software You know more reasonably. It's Of course, it's not going to be a good of experience, especially if you're using, you know, six, seven-year-old Mac in comparison to the M1, M2 chips, which are pretty spectacular, but I think that's, that's pretty agreed too. So uh, yeah, interesting stuff to keep in mind. All right. Okay. Where to next, what? sir?
1: Um, well, now I've scrolled all the way down our document to page 126. So I'm going to have to flip <laughs> back. Um, let's see. Well, let, let's talk about Apple a little bit and let's talk about that wonderful podcast. So yes, hard fork, which uh, I think Jason and I both, I think a daughter is actually, drying her hair. Hopefully that's not going to be too uh, distracting. Uh, Hard Fork from June 9th. Um, it's titled Apple. Apple's Face Computer Plus Crypto Chaos Plus How Teens Really Feel About Social Media, um, all of which were actually great topics on this podcast. This is usually an hour-long podcast released on Fridays uh, by Kevin Ruse of the New York Times, as well as platformers Casey Newton. This was, I thought, a fantastic description of really what is, what is the future of of Apple's Vision Pro, and the thing that I'll just summarize from this is, again, it, it actually ties into exactly what we were just talking about with multiple screens. I, I don't know what the record is; maybe you may have it, Jason, in your office. But when I was uh, adjuncting at the University of North Texas, working on my first few chapters of my dissertation and, and teaching a class down there, the tech director for their College of Education—no kidding—I think he had like twelve monitors. I mean, it was very obscene. But when you think about sort of the ideal computing environment that a lot of folks are having today. It's a multi-screen setup. Um, And as we're talking about, I mean, that's what we have right now. So if you think about these ski goggles being put on your head, think about going to the coffee shop and not needing to bring honestly anything else (laughs) because that $3,500 device is your full computer. But if you have a phone or something else with continuity, you'll be connected. But you know, many of us uh, still yearn for larger televisions in our living rooms, and you know, you just think the the, the bigger the better. And so, by having this in, this entire area that can be screen, you could set up a multi screen setup for yourself, or you know, watch a movie, and and the entire thing is is the screen. Anyway, I just had not thought of that. And what they point out in this podcast is that unlike Meta um, or or Facebook. What was for the company formerly known as Facebook, that own you know controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, um, Meta had been very sort of fun and silly and gamey and and cartoony, uh, and and you know that was sort of an approach when they were talking about the future of virtual reality and and what they call the metaverse. Well, Apple did not say in their keynote what la- last week anything at all mentioning the metaverse. They they call it um, something else. It's not just augmented reality. But they're really, according to uh, Kevin and Casey, uh, going towards a productivity crowd. And I think that's actually pretty exciting. So, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm not going to be in the market for a $3,500, you know, computer that I wear on my face. Uh, but I think the idea, number one, we talked about last week that Apple does this really well. They're late to the game and they've really studied this really well but the fact that they are not just thinking about ready player one and everybody playing virtual reality games they're thinking about the workplace and how you could literally take as many screens as you want anywhere you want <laughs> to any coffee shop to any you know motel room whatever and it's just all right here and of course The one that you buy today is almost certainly going to be the largest, clunkiest and slowest version that we ever have. It's just going to get smaller and lighter from here. So kind of some of the things I think we said last week about, hey, the first generation is not probably going to be that great, but they're going to iterate on this. And they're really, you know, there's a good chance that Apple's onto something because they usually hit things out of the park. So I thought that the podcast was wonderful. Um, and I also, you know, appreciated the whole deep dive into crypto that reinforced, you know, it may and anyway, things that are going on with the the FTC and and uh, these, these new court cases and things like that, which we don't have to necessarily get into, were very interesting as well. So fantastic podcast, one of the top podcast recommendations that I'd have and certainly got me thinking about Apple Vision Pro in a different way.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I I did too. Uh, I thought that was a really great description. Um, to their point, uh, twofold really. That first of all, Apple doesn't bet on losers. Uh, that's 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 the history of of. What they've done, and and you know there are plenty of examples that are easy to make fun of Apple. The four hundred dollar wheels comes to example, the thousand dollar stand for the monitor. All those pieces, I think, are pretty ridiculous. Although what I would tell you is that um, with all of those cases, that I could usually find someone that d- would defend them. It's never universal, right? And there's a certain amount of the population that would buy, you know, a twenty thousand dollar Mac because they you know need the processing power and their job depends on having the absolute uh, most uh, uh, speedy and and uh, resource efficient computer possible but they talked about the apple watch as a good example of uh, something that you know the first generation was pretty meh Um, um, and, and to be clear, I wasn't in the, the Apple ecosystem at that particular point, I was between my two stints in the Apple ecosystem. So it wasn't all that interesting to me. Although I I figured if anyone could pull it off, it was Apple, but what I noticed in The two or three years after the Apple Watch was released was that unlike the Android Watch, all of my Apple Watch wearing friends were wearing it every single day. It became a part of of their daily life. And that's still true of the people that are Apple Watch people. Uh, They just don't let it go. It's something they wear every day. But they made the point in the podcast was that it really did take on a life of its own when they uh, kind of switched categories. It wasn't a wearable anymore. It was a health fitness device. And in fact, uh, it may not be the right justification of why I bought it, uh, because I was looking for it as a bit of a toy. But I use the health and fitness stuff more than I do anything else. Um, it's a sleep tracker. It's an exercise tracker. It also gives me, uh, you know, one touch access to my um, uh, to my blood sugar uh, numbers because I have all that working together, and it's pretty great. So I think that's a um, a really interesting um, a study in this. And I agree, Dr. Fryer, with your notion that it's going to be a productivity machine. It's weird still, right? And I do think it's going to be a little uh, science fiction fiction-y, utopian dystopian to have people sitting in coffee shops with their, their things on. Uh, they also highlighted, and I haven't watched the full video yet, so I didn't see this functionality, that it takes pictures of your eyes and puts them on the outside so uh when, when, in, when
1: you're not in full right. opaque vr mode yeah
0: yeah so really strange and, wacky. and that's for
1: others that's so that other yeah. people can see that you yeah. are looking out yeah. and they'll be able to interact with you
0: yeah completely <laughs> completely freaky right right um, but, but
1: but when you think about how oh, this yeah. will operate it is not like Zuckerberg has a full VR thing that you never see out of, um, which by the way, I think is going to make it, you know, HoloLens, the U.S. Army canceled millions of dollars, I think, of, of HoloLens orders. And I think that whole yeah. thing is, is they, it's it's kabush. They're They're not yeah. going forward with it. So I think Apple's pretty genius in basically doing both. It can be the full VR opacity, but then it can also be augmented. So you're seeing through it. And if you think about that in, you know, a a military U.S. Army combat kind of situation, um, you know, that that would make a lot more sense to be able to have that kind of function. But it is going to be weird to have your floating eyeballs on the outside um, when people are looking at you. The other thing I'd say is, you know, Apple's going to iterate and they talk about that in the podcast that, you know, they honed in on what turned out to be the best use case, which really is fitness and health. And, um, you know, I think that they're going to do the same thing with with this product. But, you know, I mean, yes, we're 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 Apple geeks here. Uh, no, no hiding that. Um, I'm excited about a new platform yeah, and, and a new yeah. advance and, and this whole idea of not just an iterative change, but a transformative change. Uh, doing something that we were not doing previously. And, and I think I mentioned or we talked about on the show as well, Apple does such a good job catering to their developers, and there's a lot of augmented reality apps um, as well as virtual reality apps that are coming. So it's exciting. And I, I, I look forward to hopefully visiting an Apple store once these things become available uh, and giving it a spin and, and having a firsthand impression of it.
0: Yep, Absolutely. Well, a couple other quick um, uh, articles here, and I'm, I'm going to mention most of these in passing. Uh, there was a really good article in Engadget yesterday about kind of picking the best Apple laptop, and the reviews of the MacBook Air 15 are in, and I, I read 10 of them this morning, actually, in quick succession, and they all basically said the same thing. It is a faithful reproduction of the MacBook Air 13 M2 in a 15 inch model with a much larger uh, screen and that it's it it's really uh fills a space in the apple ecosystem that doesn't really exist right now which is people that want a larger screen either for productivity purposes or entertainment purposes um they buy this laptop at a relatively reasonable price and at least half of the reviews i read said this is by far the best 15-inch laptop available so if you're in the market for that Uh, For a new uh, uh, laptop, specifically a new MacBook, this will walk you through the options. And remember, Apple does a a pretty big favor that um, it kind of helps the the cost of the Apple laptop, which is that it very frequently um, will allow updates. uh, uh, to the most modern OS years after they released the laptop. So you can legitimately use some of these for six, seven, eight years without any hacks to, to put a new version on there. Um, but speaking of, um, Ars Technica had an article on June 5th talking about that the latest uh, edition of OS ten, which or, I'm sorry, of, of Mac OS, excuse me, um, uh, which is Sonoma, uh, Will drop a lot of Intel Macs uh, from support, and this has been happening now for for two years. That Apple looks pretty interested to get out of the Intel business and really provide all of its support uh, to to M1 Macs. And I would imagine it does cost quite a bit to to support you know two different architectures. Um, But that's happening with the newest version. And um, I did find the name of the software we were talking about. It's the OpenCore Legacy Patcher. So if you are not able to update to the latest version, chances are the OpenCore Legacy Patcher will be able to allow you to do so. I would also note, though, that the open core people have already, uh, and I saw this on on I think it was their Twitter uh, channel that as soon as Sonoma was announced, they said that we'll start digging into it. The moment we have access to it a, as a developer beta, but you know we don't even know if you know we can uh, uh, do the same thing with Sonoma that they did with the, the recent versions of of, of Mac OS. So important to keep that in mind, but uh, smart people work there, but that that's definitely a way to keep you uh, in, in the environment.
1: How about rounding out our last Apple article with uh, Zuck's opinion of the Vision Pro?
0: Yeah, so um, uh, obviously, you know, all eyes were on Mark Zuckerberg, and I will tell you there was a lot of really funny Twitter traffic on the day they released the Vision Pro because of how cartoony the – meta uh uh products are in, in in this environment and here is you know apple offering what is essentially a you know, high uh, a high pixel density uh display that allows you to see um you know basically um uh, lifelike images uh, inside this headset and you know a lot of the, the the meta products with their current set of devices uh like the quest uh three headset um, uh, which is a going to be a five hundred dollar product when it's released, um, is utilizing what what effectively looks like eight bit and sixteen bit games, uh, to kind of advertise it, and, um, he did have an all hands meeting uh, where he talked about it, um, uh, uh, and he tried to spin it as, um. You know, the quest is going to be about people interacting in new ways and feeling closer, while also being active and doing things. By contrast, every demo they showed was a person sitting on a couch by themselves. That's not exactly what I would say is the contrast between the two devices. Um, But um, you know, again, it's it's you know, it's their primary competitor in this space. So of course, they're not going to have very nice things to say about this. I still maintain that this is. Apple's uh, vision here is going to rocket this particular um, uh, 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 area of the the, the ecosystem uh, forward in a dramatic way.
1: The biggest difference, I mean, obviously there's a cost difference, but this whole idea that you can see through it, and it can be an augmented device yeah. like glasses that you're looking through, or it can be fully opaque and and just a a complete you know immersion in the virtual environment. Um, what's going to be telling is to see if facebook slash meta slash zuckerberg uh, copy that in another version of of their oculus uh, quest so yep
0: absolutely well dr fryer we seem to be about 40 minutes in already that's a time that went quickly um shall we maybe jump into this week's ai news yes absolutely where do you want to start Um, Well, um, I want to start with an article that is actually from several weeks ago, but I had not heard this news. Uh, This is from our friends archive.org. Um, and they report something that I hadn't heard about elsewhere, and it was on their blog, and it's it's kind of an interesting piece here. Um, archive.org, which uh, Dr. Fryer and I both use a lot, it's the Internet Archive. It is a massive library of uh, mostly abandoned publications, uh, an incredible trove of information. Uh, they also have the Wayback Machine, which allows you to look at past versions of web pages, sometimes going 25 years back. And they had a thing happen a couple weeks ago, which is they were starting to get um, tens of thousands, this is a quoting from their blog post, tens of thousands of requests per second for our public domain OCR files were launched from 64 virtual hosts on Amazon's AWS services. Even by web standards, tens of thousands of requests per second is a lot. This activity brought archive.org down for all users for about an hour. And so what they what they suspect is happening was that people were archiving this in order to feed an AI... Uh, an AI large language model. And for those that, uh, haven't dug into this yet, um, and we've talked about this a couple of times, the reason why these large language models are as effective as they are is because they train themselves on large amounts of internet data, right? It read a ton of materials and processed it, um, as part of developing, you know, in the case of, of, of chat GPT version four, their large language model has trillions of data points that have been, um, sucked up by the internet. And in the case of archive.org, they have a ton of historical documents and print materials, um, in these libraries. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the suspicion is, is that, um, um, that that's what this was, ha- what was happening here. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, confluence of, you know, two topics we've been talking about recently on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Wow. And what an amazing, I'm <laughs> I'm just getting getting distracted uh, with their blog. Um, just such such great resources. Um, it's it's fantastic, and, and hopefully they're going to win their lawsuit. We talked a couple of weeks ago, I think, about a lawsuit. Uh, wasn't that with Internet Archive? I think as far as the digitization of. Uh, well, no, that had to do with libraries making that th- allowing um, multiple um, version. You know, it had to do with access to physical copies of books that they've scanned and things like that. Yeah. Anyway, internet archives, fantastic. And
0: wow. Great. Well, Wes, I think we both shared an article on this, but why don't you talk about uh, the good friends at Microsoft, ignoring a warning from OpenAI?
1: Okay. Well, I, um, I'd actually heard about this from another source uh, before I read this. So I was excited to, to read this in a, uh, you know, o- o- open journal and, um, We talked about this on the show. It really seemed that Microsoft... Can you highlight it? I'm trying to find where that article is so I can click on it. Uh, Um, Yeah, yeah, right there. Thank you. Um, The second link. Um, It seemed like Microsoft was really in a rush to hook uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT to the public internet and some of the things that we had heard before about these AI platforms is, well, we're being very careful. Well, there's a kill switch. Well, we want to air gap these, you know, and then as soon as Microsoft can, basically, it seems like they just, you know, we're rushing to, to hook this up. Well, this article uh, confirmed some things that I had heard other people talk about. Um, and that was that the open AI engineers were not supportive of this. Um, the unhinged behavior that we saw, um, um what was its name um the name of the of of uh kevin Roos of the new york times yeah but i'm trying to think of what what is the actual name sydney oh, sydney. sydney was the code name of of uh the chat gpt you know powered bing uh you know and and if you if you haven't seen you haven't read that it's one of the more remarkable things i think we've talked about i mean kevin ends up having a 3 hour conversation Ironically, on Valentine's Day, uh, in which finally the uh, Sydney AI chatbot uh, tells him that that it loves him and that he should leave his wife, um, and that you know it dreams of of wreaking violence upon its enemies and and doing these things. It's it's really unhinged and crazy. And so anyway, it turns out that the OpenAI researchers realized that it wasn't ready for prime time. Let's connect it to the internet and let millions of people access it. Uh, and so that's come out. So it's just interesting the different pressures that we have here. And I guess I would just say also, we really shouldn't just leave this to corporations and even nonprofits to decide what they're going to do. We really, this is a powerful technology. We had hundreds of AI researchers and other notable folks, uh, scientists, sign a, like one sentence letter uh, a, a week or a couple of weeks ago where they said, you know, AI needs to be, because it can be existential. It can, it can have huge, you know, damage and and pose huge risks. We need to treat it like nuclear weapons and global pandemics. Uh, And and so that's an attention-getting statement. And so I think it's unfortunate that Microsoft rushed this in in their eager, I think, desire to try to improve Bing and and compete with Google. Uh, It was just, it was irresponsible. And while at this point, you know, it's a ha-ha, you know, Sydney told Kevin Ruse he should leave his wife and you know, seems to be unhinged, that doesn't seem to make, make any difference. Uh, all of these AI researchers are saying that we should take this very seriously. It's not a laughing matter, it's not a joke. And so I think the underscore here is that we shouldn't just leave this up to the companies to try and decide, well, whatever you all wanna do with it, it'll be fine. We need to have some kind, and this is what Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI is saying, um, we don't wanna just leave this to Congress there needs to be a body and that could be an existing body like the FTC but more likely a new body of government regulators that need to to have the authority to be able to regulate this and you know much like licenses to fly airplanes. Dr. Neifer and I could go, theoretically, if we had the money, buy an airplane tomorrow, but we couldn't go fly it wherever we want because we wouldn't have a license to do it. And so regulation is, unf- unf- and this is my editorializing, unfortunately, very undervalued in our political climate today. And I think it has been for decades. And we need to have some some appropriate regulation of these tools because while we're laughing about some of these things and saying, oh, how silly that is, AI is not a laughing matter. And yeah. you, can, you can see what drones are doing in, in Ukraine right now um, and the roles in which machine learning and AI is playing in warfare to see it, it's no laughing matter. I mean, it's a very consequential technology.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other thing, too, is that and now to look at the flip side of that, uh, I want to share a BBC article from June 12th talking about Amazon and how they are trying to crack down on fake reviews using AI And one of the things that I I don't think that we're spending enough time uh, talking about is, you know, it's really easy to get sucked into the generative nature of, of these AI models, because it is quite extraordinary. But what's underneath the surface here is that these large language models are really impacting the ability Um, on a relatively inexpensive basis to analyze data. And in this case, the BBC is talking about how Amazon wants to use um, uh, uh, AI to uh, crack down on fake reviews and also spot uh, uh, problematic reviews that could be through, um, you know, uh, uh, any number of, of schemes that are available to do that. And that really does, you know, limit the effectiveness of websites like Amazon and one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that, and I think especially in education, this is true, we get sucked into the, oh my Lord, it can, you know, write papers for kids part of this. And again, I don't want to diminish the impact of that because it's, it's, it's truly remarkable uh, and extraordinary and, and demands our attention, but we may be able to do some really interesting things uh, with this technology And in fact, yesterday morning, there was a a pretty interesting story on NPR about how AI analysis is probably going to lead to uh, an extraordinary increase in the effectiveness of things like security video. Um, Our world is absolutely recorded. You know, most businesses, um, and I don't know this for certain, but I'm almost certain there has to be a number of cameras on the campus I work on for security purposes. Uh, and the problem is, is that there's just so much video that goes unanalyzed because you have to have a human look at that. And if you can imagine for a moment, you know, that becoming more effective. Now, that said, you know, the dystopian risk there is is pretty significant too, right? But you know, let's not diminish the opportunity that AI could could offer to us in just the data analysis alone.
1: Several thoughts about that. I'm uh, now finishing my fourth year being a recovering technology director, but uh, when I was a technology director, one of the things we looked at because we had over a hundred surveillance cameras all over our 80 acre campus, um, there were tools that if we wanted to, we could upload all of our video instead of just using local servers and this was four years ago, we could then query it to say, when did a white Jeep drive onto our campus? When did this license plate show up or anything? And and that that capability is just vast. So for folks who might be technology directors or involved with security in your organization, I definitely think that the benefits of being able to have AI analysis on the vast trove of video content that you are ingesting on however many cameras you've got on your system far outweighs um, the, the risks. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and please don't take this as legal advice, because there's definitely, as Jason said, some, some pretty big risks to uploading that to the cloud. But it is phenomenal what that capability is. And just on the little cameras, we've got the, you know, Google Home cameras and we're using the Wise cameras um, and and their ability. And it's pretty much, you know, familiar face detection, pets. There's also sounds and things like that. All of that is just going to be much more robust. And for an enterprise level solution, it's just going to allow you to ask your literal database of video a whole range of potentially complex and important questions. That would not be possible if you were not using an AI analysis uh, engine with your video, and i and probably that that kind of technology may even exist now where you don't have to upload it to the cloud and you can still keep it local. And there's really you know huge bandwidth considerations if you're thinking about uploading all your video. But that those are those are great solutions to check into. I think. Yep, absolutely. Uh, well, Dr. Fryer, AI news from your end. Oh, let's see. Um, Yeah, let's do this Fast Company article. So this was Fast Company on June 8th. Adobe is so confident its Firefly generative AI won't breach copyright that it'll cover your legal bills. One of the things that we are going to undoubtedly see in the coming months and years are AI models that have more precise and specific training data. What OpenAI did with ChatGPT was apparently... Just pretty much scrape the entire web, and you know that's caused all kinds of problems with artists and other people saying, "Wait a minute, you didn't? I didn't give my permission for you know for you to to, to use this." Uh, the hallucination problem, and there's other terms for that. That's a an anthropomorphic term that some people you know disagree with and and object to. But this idea that it invents things, that's super important to know that it that it does that. But for instance, if you think about A LexisNexis database, which is what I think lawyers use to, um, you know, do their legal research. If it was just using actual court cases as its training data, I mean, there's going to be a question of is there enough data there for it to be good enough. But um, Adobe, anyway, has created this kind of a database. They have respected copyright. They have not ingested things that, you know, were just out on the web. Uh, we've talked about Clearview AI, which is a commercially available tool that police forces all over the United States and maybe internationally, I'm not sure. But anyway, they are using to do facial recognition and to grab a face off of a surveillance camera. And, hey, it'll tell you this is this is who it is. We think so. And but it's using all of this you know, illegally scraped data. Adobe is uh, complying with copyright. So, yay, Adobe. Um, and as the headline says, they are, you know, very confident that you're not going to run into trouble because they're going to pay your legal bills if you get into difficulty. So just as we talked about months ago with Padlet, Padlet is a fantastic, you know, virtual sticky note platform. Our school pays for a license for Padlet. I use that quite a bit. In fact, I used it a little more this last year teaching middle school than I did. Um, seesaw because I want a space for my students to be able to see each other's work and to comment and to kind of have a little social interaction around their media they're creating. Well, Padlet has a button that allows you to say, I can't draw. And then it would use like the Dolly uh, AI, uh, generative AI engine in order to, to draw whatever it is that you're describing. So very excited about Adobe's moves here. Excellent modeling of copyright compliance. And I think that you know these need to be conversations we take into the the upcoming school year with respect to AI and there's you know a crossover here in terms of intellectual property right, intellectual property copyright, um, you know respecting uh, the rights of owners, recognizing that as creators we have rights as well. Um, but yeah, Adobe.
0: Yep. Yeah. And 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 by the way the. If anyone knows this community and also uh, the the whole notion of intellectual property, it's Adobe. So that that is a stunning uh, move forward, I think, in that process.
1: And we mentioned Uh, this a couple weeks ago, but Adobe is working on a standard where they're trying to watermark images to be able to tell whether or not they have been created by any kind of generative technology. And that's definitely also something else to watch. So I just think Adobe's really on this and that's uh something that we'll continue to track. And I think everybody who's interested in educational technology needs to be paying attention to. Yep,
0: absolutely. Well I have two companion articles that they go pretty well together. Uh one of them is is kind of some breaking news from today. The EU um, has passed Um, what is being called the most comprehensive AI regulation uh, 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 yet. And the EU process is... I wouldn't say convoluted, it's complicated because of the nature of the individual members and there's an executive branch in the EU and there's individual member states. And so it's a little complicated, but um, they are focusing uh, their initial efforts uh, mostly on things related to um, facial recognition and those types of AI technologies. But uh, they have passed uh, a law and apparently they get six months um uh, to work with uh, both member states and then the executive to come up with what exactly what this means uh, so that they can, you know, push this forward. Um, uh, again, this is focused focus mostly on the notion of facial recognition is where they want to put um, their efforts. But the companion article to that is that in fact, I heard several uh, stories about this and read several stories about this, but the United States Senate is going to be working on um, some, um, advanced meetings this summer, my, my understanding is they're closed door uh, meetings, where they're going to uh, kind of brush up on AI basics, so that they can start looking at what they might do um, in order to meaningfully regulate this industry. And uh, I think that's a really good sign uh, that, that maybe the United States... Can jump into this. Now, of course, you know, they're still spinning their wheels over social media. So let's not get too excited about what the prospects are here. As we've reported, you know, a dozen times in this podcast, the EU, uh, th- their regulatory uh, structure is so much. Ahead of the United States on social media, data privacy and other pieces that, you know, it's it's likely that that the EU will lead here, not the United States. But I am encouraged to to hear there's bipartisan efforts to start to. Uh, uh educate senators so that they can start working on on regulation and this article particularly mentions the May 2023 testimony from Sam Altman the CEO of OpenAI uh who uh we basically asked for um, uh, uh, regulation, that you know, he is a, an advocate for this, and I also, I guess, didn't know this as concretely as I do now. Um, apparently, Mr. Altman has no no financial interest in the company. He is independently wealthy. He's the CEO that gets a salary, and that's it. Um, and he feels like that's important to maintain, so he has no vested interest um, in 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 the AI technology other than its development and hopefully positive use. But I do think that this is a good sign that perhaps the United States will, will will try to do something here appropriately to regulate this tech.
1: I mentioned on the show that I've been in an email contact with a, a Senate judiciary staffer as a result of a contact I made with our U.S. senator and uh... – we were able to, we missed another contact, but we've got another appointment next week to try to visit. So I don't, I don't know uh, exactly the, the inquiry I had was, Hey, I'm really tracking a lot with what's happening with big tech and AI specifically. If you've got any kind of focus group, my dad's done things like that with the veterans, with veterans issues uh, with some of our, our policymakers. So maybe, maybe when we come back from our uh, multi-week hiatus, which we'll talk about here uh, in a little bit, maybe I'll, I'll have a little bit of insight specifically into that because it does sound optimistic, and it definitely seems like the tone is different than it was with the social media testimony that that uh, you know was sort of like a circus. Um, what we saw with with Mr. Altman, um, you know, it just it just seemed to be much more focused, um, a lot more intelligent questions, and and just the the tone and tenor of, of all of it seemed to be much more constructive and hopeful in possibly moving forward and doing something rather than just Sort of flapping our arms and, you know, getting a C-SPAN clip, you know, put on the mainstream media.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Well, Dr. Fryer, um,
0: oh, okay. There's one more thing I want to talk about. Uh, this was also mentioned in a recent uh, Hard Fork podcast. This is from VentureBeat on uh, June 4th. There's a statistic that I want to introduce our listeners to, and it's called P-Doom. And um, it's P in parentheses, doom. And it is the expression in the form of a percentage on how likely it is that AI is going to cause something really, truly terrible to happen. And the reason why I mentioned this is there was an episode of Hard Fork a couple weeks back where they brought on an AI expert um, to talk to uh, the host of, of of that podcast, and they kept talking about P doom and um uh and the notion of it. And when they said, um, you know, P doom, I'm assuming that we were talking about one percent, two percent, three percent. And in fact, uh, Kevin Ruse said five percent um uh on the podcast and their um uh expert and I, I can't pronounce her first name but uh Kotra is her last name, uh Ajaya Kotra. Um, and by the way, wonderful episode. Uh, she's an AI safety expert with Open Philanthropy, and she set her pre-doom at 20 to 30%. So again, let's, you know, I, I think we have to respond to this and absolutely think about this in, in context of K-12 education, but absolutely don't forget that there's a, a bigger picture here and that we need to mine our part of the story here, but there's certainly some extraordinary things that could happen um, because of this particular technology. So
1: two thoughts about that. Number one, I think it was on hard fork that they were kind of separating the 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 concerns that people have about artificial intelligence. And there are these hypothetical future scenarios of of existential, you know, humanity ending threats and that's important and it needs to be talked about and addressed but we shouldn't focus on that to the exclusion of the real practical things in terms of what it can be used for today what people are using it for the limitations that it has especially in terms of hallucination and and needing to be verified and checked and you know just there's these these different levels of concerns and the other thing i would point out from that article is it talks about the alignment problem which is this idea that we want to have guardrails on these models, so for instance, they don't just, you know, teach people how to how to make thermite explosives or sarin gas or other, you know, kinds of illegal weapons. Um, we want it to, uh, you know, hopefully ha- have some ethics and and some morality, and we need that to be aligned. But the problem is, you know, whose values are you going to align it with? And I would say this highlights overall. One of the most important challenges we have that is related to technology, but it's to figure out how we can govern uh, in the United States specifically and not have the fringe outliers. Really, dis- derail or, or you know, significantly disrupt the political process. I think one of the reasons Europe is ahead of the United States with respect to privacy law and regulation of big tech is that they have some greater levels of compromise and effectiveness with their governmental systems. And I think these are really, really big issues we need to work out. Again, it's it is you know, tangentially tied to technology, but fundamentally it has to do with governance. And thankfully folks, uh, I think Jason has run, you ran for Lieutenant Governor, right?
0: <laughs> I did run for Lieutenant Governor.
1: You know, so the future may be, may be bright. Uh, Dr. Neifer, you know, from, from Montana, may be solving all these issues for us. Uh, and uh, if not, he's he's going to have some good suggestions for what we can do. But in all seriousness, I, I think that, you know, the, the issues with AI highlight some issues that are just really human issues. And I mean, I've, I've shared this a little bit with my kids before. It's like, folks, we need you all to figure this stuff out. There's so much we haven't figured out and we really need smart minds to, to figure these things out. And it's not just, you know, how these technologies are going to work. It's also how are we going to get along and how are we going to, you know, resolve conflict and resolve these issues. And we've got, you know, just, just as we have with the internet, the more folks that have gotten online, the more, you know challenges that that uh, from the face-to-face world end up coming to the online world, and I think we're, we we sort of see some of those reflected within AI as well. But definitely want to echo um, how wonderful that that hard fork podcast is and how important it is for us to be considering these issues and to be ready at some level to talk with colleagues as we go back to school in the fall and to also be talking to students because these are not issues that any of us can ignore. I guarantee you there will be large numbers of students using ChatGPT in your school district this next year. I just guarantee it. And so we need to be having conversations about that. And hopefully it's going to move beyond just, yep, we block it. And if you use it, you know, you're, you're kicked out of school. I mean, it, it, it needs to, to be much more nuanced than that.
0: Yeah, totally. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Okay. Dr. Fryer, anything else we need to hit this week?
1: I feel like if we're going to do Geeks of the Week at the beginning in the future, we'll need to, you know, have some some other sort of wrap up. But maybe for this week, it just just be the forecast. So, are we looking at? I'm good. Is there any other article you want to hit before we? we No, I I
0: covered everything that is um, uh,
1: uh, timely for now. Okay. Well, we got some summer holidays coming up, and I know Peggy was saying she's she's bracing for withdrawal. So I I, uh, we do apologize, Peggy. But I think we're talking about a three-week hiatus. So that would be uh, taking off June 21st, 28th, as well as July 5th. Would that be correct? And kicking off on uh, That's July correct.
0: And there's a small chance I may also need to take the week after off as well. But
1: I'm trying to diminish that possibility. So. Why don't we, you know what, we will, that would, it would be good for us to be off that. So why don't we just do four weeks? And why don't we okay. just plan to reconvene on the 19th? Okay,
0: sounds great. It's will, our summer will. hiatus here. at the It NXT is a
1: show. summer hiatus. So uh, I we are behind, I am behind on publishing our past shows. So uh, those will be uh, scheduled and published. But yeah, we'll be taking a bit of a summer break here. And um, we will be rejoining you live in a month on July 19th.
0: Okay, sounds great. Well, Dr. Fryer, where can people find you in the meantime
1: on the internets? Well, when I'm not offline backpacking at Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina, where I was this last week, uh, you can Seattle. find yeah or <laughs> Seattle, uh, you can find me at westfire.com/slash after, and I think I'm now basically cross posting to like six different, <laughs> six different social media channels depending on the topic, uh, but those are all linked on westfire.com/slash after. How about you, Doctor?
0: Well, best place to find me still is Twitter Tech savvy teach. Um, I'm, I, I, I' usually uh, copy everything that Dr. Fryer does so at some point I think I might create a um, a knifer.com slash after as well but Twitter's the best place to find me but hey this here is the ethics situation room where a once a week podcast on Wednesday nights, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and the middle of the night UTC if you happen to live in Western Europe. We would hope you join us live. You can hang out with Peggy George in the chat room. If not, then you can find us anywhere, finer podcasts are aggregated. All of our videos are archived on YouTube and Facebook. And we are extraordinarily excited for you um, to download us wherever you'd like to. You can also get our links at our website, edtechsr.com. You can also download a tiny MP3 if that's your thing. In any case, we hope you tune in and listen to the EdTech Situation Room. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next month on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.
1: Happy summer.